Section 19 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator Unknown. Section 19. Parts 191 through 200. 191. If philosophy were substituted for religion, Philosophers have everywhere taken upon themselves a part which seemed destined to the ministers of religion. The hatred of the latter for philosophy was only a jealousy of trade. But instead of endeavoring to injure and decry one another, all men of good sense should unite their efforts to combat error, seek truth, and especially to put to flight the prejudices that are equally injurious to sovereigns and subjects, and of which the abettors themselves sooner or later become the victims. In the hands of an enlightened government, the priests would become the most useful of the citizens. Already richly paid by the state, and free from the care of providing for their own subsistence, how could they be better employed than in qualifying themselves for the instruction of others? Would not their minds be better satisfied with discovering luminous truths, than in wandering through the thick darkness of error? Would it be more difficult to discern the clear principles of morality than the imaginary principles of a divine and theological morality? Would men of ordinary capacities find it as difficult to fix in their heads the simple notions of their duties as to load their memories with mysteries, unintelligible words, and obscure definitions of which they can never form a clear idea? What time and pains are lost in learning and teaching things which are not of the least real utility? What resources for the encouragement of the sciences, the advancement of knowledge, and the education of youth well-disposed sovereigns might find in the many monasteries which in several countries live upon the people without in the slightest degree profiting them? But superstition, jealous of its exclusive empire, seems resolved to form only useless beings. To what advantage might we not turn a multitude of cenobites of both sexes who, in many countries, are amply endowed for doing nothing? Instead of overwhelming them with fasting and austerities, instead of barren contemplations, mechanical prayers, and trifling ceremonies, why should we not excite in them a salutary emulation which may incline them to seek the means, not of being dead to the world, but of being useful to it. Instead of filling the youthful minds of their pupils with fables, sterile dogmas, and puerilities, why are not priests obliged or invited to teach them truths and to render them useful citizens of their country? Under the present system, men are only useful to the clergy who blind them, and to the tyrants who fleece them. 192. Recantation of an unbeliever at the point of death proves nothing. The partisans of credulity often accuse unbelievers of insincerity because they sometimes waver in their principles, alter their minds in sickness, and retract at death. When the body is disordered, the faculty of reasoning is commonly disordered with it. At the approach of death, man, weak and decayed, is sometimes himself sensible 
that reason abandons him and that prejudice returns. There are some diseases which tend to weaken the brain, to create despondency and pusillanimity, and there are others which destroy the body but do not disturb the reason. At any rate, an unbeliever who recants in sickness is not more extraordinary than a devotee who neglects in health the duties which his religion explicitly enjoins. Ministers of religion openly contradict in their daily conduct the rigorous principles they teach to others, in consequence of which unbelievers, in their turn, may justly accuse them of insincerity. Is it easy to find many prelates, humble, generous, void of ambition, enemies of pomp and grandeur, and friends of poverty? In short, is the conduct of Christian ministers conformable to the austere morality of Christ, their God, and their model? 193. It is not true that atheism breaks the bonds of society. Atheism, it is said, breaks all the ties of society. Without the belief of a god, what will become of the sacredness of oaths? How shall we oblige a man to speak the truth who cannot seriously call the deity to witness what he says? But does an oath strengthen our obligation to fulfill the engagements contracted? Will he who is not fearful of lying be less fearful of perjury? He who is base enough to break his word, or unjust enough to violate his engagements, in contempt of the esteem of men, will not be more faithful therein for having called all the gods to witness his oaths. Those who disregard the judgments of men will soon disregard the judgments of God. Are not princes of all men the most ready to swear and the most ready to violate their oaths? 194. Refutiation of the Opinion that Religion Necessary for the Vulgar The vulgar, it is repeatedly said, must have a religion. If enlightened persons have no need of the restraint of opinion, it is at least necessary to rude men whose reason is uncultivated by education. But is it indeed a fact that religion is a restraint upon the vulgar? Do we see that this religion preserves them from intemperance, drunkenness, brutality, violence, fraud, and every kind of excess? Could a people who have no idea of the deity conduct themselves in a more detestable manner than these believing people, among whom we find dissipation and vices, the most unworthy of reasonable beings? Upon going out of the churches, do not the working classes and the populace plunge without fear into their ordinary irregularities, under the idea that the periodical homage which they render to their god authorizes them to follow without remorse their vicious habits and pernicious propensities? Finally, if the people are so low-minded and unreasonable, is not their stupidity chargeable to the negligence of their princes, who are wholly regardless of public education, or who even oppose the instruction of their subjects? Is not the want of reason in the people evidently the work of the priests, who, instead of instructing men in a rational morality, entertain them with fables, reveries, 
ceremonies, fallacies, and false virtues which they think of the greatest importance? To the people, religion is but a vain display of ceremonies to which they are attached by habit, which entertains their eyes and produces a transient emotion in their torpid understandings, without influencing their conduct or reforming their morals. Even by the confession of the ministers of the altars, nothing is more rare than that internal and spiritual religion, which alone is capable of regulating the life of man and of triumphing over his evil propensities. In the most numerous and devout nation, are there many persons who are equally capable of understanding the principles of their religious system and who find them powerful enough to stifle their perverse inclinations? Many persons will say that any restraint whatever is better than none. They will maintain that if religion awes not the greater part, it serves at least to restrain some individuals who would otherwise, without remorse, abandon themselves to crime. Men ought undoubtedly to have a restraint, but not an imaginary one. Religion only frightens those whose imbecility of character has already prevented them from being formidable to their fellow citizens. An equitable government, severe laws, and sound morality have an equal power over all. At least every person must believe in them and perceive the danger of not conforming to them. 195. Logical systems are not adapted to the capacity of the vulgar. Perhaps it will be asked whether atheism can be proper for the multitude. I answer that any system which requires discussion is not made for the multitude. What purpose, then, can it serve to preach atheism? It may at least serve to convince all those who reason that nothing is more extravagant than to fret oneself and nothing more unjust than to vex others for mere groundless conjectures. As for the vulgar who never reason, the arguments of an atheist are no more fit for them than the systems of a natural philosopher, the observations of an astronomer, the experiments of a chemist, the calculations of a geometrician, the researches of a physician, the plans of an architect, or the pleadings of a lawyer, who all labor for the people without their knowledge. Are the metaphysical reasonings and religious disputes, which have so long engrossed the time and attention of so many profound thinkers, better adapted to the generality of men than the reasoning of an atheist? Nay, as the principles of atheism are founded upon plain common sense, are they not more intelligible than those of a theology beset with difficulties which even the persons of the greatest genius cannot explain? In every country the people have a religion, the principles of which they are totally ignorant, and which they follow from habit without any examination. Their priests alone are engaged in theology, which is too dense for vulgar heads. If the people should chance to lose this unknown theology, they mighty easily console themselves for the loss of a thing not only perfectly useless, but also productive of dangerous commotions. 
It would be madness to write for the vulgar or to attempt to cure their prejudices all at once. We write for those only who read and reason. The multitude read but little and reason still less. Calm and rational persons will require new ideas and knowledge will be gradually diffused. 196. On the Futility and Danger of Theology If theology is a branch of commerce profitable to theologians, it is evidently not only superfluous, but injurious to the rest of society. Self-interest will sooner or later open the eyes of men. Sovereigns and subjects will one day adopt the profound indifference and contempt merited by a feudal system which serves only to make men miserable. All persons will be sensible of the inutility of the many expensive ceremonies which contribute nothing to public felicity. Contemptible quarrels will cease to disturb the tranquility of states when we blush at having considered them important. Instead of Parliament meddling with the senseless combats of your clergy, instead of foolishly espousing their impertinent quarrels, and attempting to make your subjects adopt uniform opinions, strive to make them happy in this world. Respect their liberty and property, watch over their education, encourage them in their labors, reward their talents and virtues, repress licentiousness, and do not concern yourselves with their manner of thinking. Theological fables are useful only to tyrants and the ignorant. 197. On the evils produced by implicit faith. Does it then require an extraordinary effort of genius to comprehend that what is above the capacity of man is not made for him? That things supernatural are not made for natural beings? That impenetrable mysteries are not made for limited minds? If theologians are foolish enough to dispute upon objects which they acknowledge to be unintelligible even to themselves, ought society to take any part in their silly quarrels? Must the blood of nations flow to enhance the conjectures of a few infatuated dreamers? If it is difficult to cure theologians of their madness and the people of their prejudices, it is at least easy to prevent the extravagancies of one party and the silliness of the other from producing pernicious effects. Let every one be permitted to think as he pleases, but never let him be permitted to injure others for their manner of thinking. Were the rulers of nations more just and rational, theological opinions would not affect the public tranquility more than the disputes of natural philosophers, physicians, grammarians, and critics. It is tyranny which causes theological quarrels to be attended with serious consequences. Those who extol the importance and utility of religion ought to show us its happy effects, the advantages, for instance, which the disputes and abstract speculations of theology can be to porters, artisans, and laborers, and to the multitude of unfortunate women and corrupt servants with which great cities abound. All these beings are religious. They have what is called an implicit faith. Their parsons believe for them. 
and they stupidly adhere to the unknown belief of their guides. They go to hear sermons, and would think it a great crime to transgress any of the ordinances to which, in childhood, they are taught to conform. But of what service to morals is all this? None at all. They have not the least idea of morality, and are even guilty of all the roguery, fraud, rapine, and excess that is out of the reach of law. The populace have no idea of their religion. What they call religion is nothing but a blind attachment to unknown opinions and mysterious practices. In fact, to deprive people of religion is to deprive them of nothing. By overthrowing their prejudices, we should only lessen or annihilate the dangerous confidence they put in interested guides and should teach them to mistrust those who, under the pretext of religion, often lead them into fatal excesses. 198. On the Evils Produced by Implicit Faith While pretending to instruct and enlighten men, religion in reality keeps them in ignorance and stifles the desire of knowing the most interesting objects. The people have no other rule of conduct than what their priests are pleased to prescribe. Religion supplies the place of everything else. But being in itself essentially obscure, it is more proper to lead mortals astray than to guide them in the path of science and happiness. Religion renders enigmatical all natural philosophy, morality, legislation, and politics. A man blinded by religious prejudices fears truth whenever it clashes with his opinions. He cannot know his own nature, he cannot cultivate his reason, he cannot perform experiments. Everything concurs to render the people devout, but everything tends to prevent them from being humane, reasonable, and virtuous. Religion seems to have no other object than to stupefy the mind. Priests have been ever at war with genius and talent, because well-informed men perceive that superstition shackles the human mind and would keep it in eternal infancy, occupied solely by fables and frightened by phantoms. Incapable of improvement itself, theology opposed insurmountable barriers to the progress of true knowledge. Its sole object is to keep nations and their rulers in the most profound ignorance of their duties, and of the real motives that should incline them to do good. It obscures morality, renders its principles arbitrary, and subjects it to the caprice of the gods or of their ministers. It converts the art of governing men into a mysterious tyranny, which is the scourge of nations. It changes princes into unjust, licentious despots, and the people into ignorant slaves, who become corrupt in order to merit the favor of their masters. 199. All religions were established by impostors in days of ignorance. By tracing the history of the human mind, we shall be easily convinced that theology has cautiously guarded against its progress. It began by giving out fables as sacred truth. It produced poetry, 
which filled the imagination of men with its puerile fictions. It entertained them with its gods and their incredible deeds. In a word, religion has always treated men like children whom it lulled to sleep with tales which its ministers would have us still regard as incontestable truths. If the ministers of the gods have sometimes made useful discoveries, they have always been careful to give them a dogmatical tone and envelop them in the shades of mystery. Pythagoras and Plato, in order to acquire some trifling knowledge, were obliged to court the favor of priests to be initiated in their mysteries and to undergo whatever trials they were pleased to impose. At this price they were permitted to imbibe those exalted notions still so bewitching to all those who admire only what is perfectly unintelligible. It was from Egyptian, Indian, and Chaldean priests, from the schools of these visionaries, professionally interested in bewildering human reason, that philosophy was obliged to borrow its first rudiments. Obscure and false in its principles, mixed with fictions and fables, and made only to dazzle the imagination, the progress of this philosophy was precarious, and its theories unintelligible. Instead of enlightening, it blighted the mind, and diverted it from objects truly useful. The theological speculations and mystical reveries of the ancients are still law in a great part of the philosophic world, and being adopted by modern theology, it is heresy to abandon them. They tell us of aerial beings, of spirits, angels, demons, genii, and other phantoms which are the object of their meditations and serve as the basis of metaphysics, an abstract and futile science which for thousands of years the greatest geniuses have vainly studied. Hypothesis imagined by a few visionaries of Memphis and Babylon constitute even now the foundations of a science whose obscurity makes it revered as marvelous and divine. The first legislators were priests, the first mythologists, poets, learned men, and physicians were priests. In their hands science became sacred and was withheld from the profane. They spoke only in allegories, emblems, enigmas, and ambiguous oracles, means well calculated to excite curiosity, and above all, to inspire the astonished vulgar with a holy respect for men, who when they were thought to be instructed by the gods, and capable of reading in the heavens the fate of the earth, boldly proclaimed themselves the oracles of the deity. 200. All religions borrow from one another ridiculous ceremonies. The religions of ancient priests have only changed form. Although our modern theologians regard their predecessors as impostors, yet they have collected many scattered fragments of their religious systems. In modern religions we find not only their metaphysical dogmas, which theology has merely clothed in a new dress, but also some remarkable remains of their superstitious practices, their magic, and their enchantments. 
Christians are still commanded to respect the remaining monuments of the legislators, priests, and prophets of the Hebrew religion, which had borrowed its strange practices from Egypt. Thus extravagancies, imagined by knaves or idolatrous visionaries, are still sacred among Christians. If we examine history, we shall find a striking resemblance among all religions. In all parts of the earth, we see that religious notions periodically depress and elevate the people. The attention of man is everywhere engrossed, by rites often abominable, and by mysteries always formidable, which become the sole objects of meditation. The different superstitions borrow from one another their abstract reveries and ceremonies. Religions are in general mere unintelligible rhapsodies, combined by new teachers who use the materials of their predecessors, reserving the right of adding or retrenching whatever is not conformable to the present age. The religion of Egypt was evidently the basis of the religion of Moses, who banished the worship of idols. Moses was merely a schismatic Egyptian. Christianism is only reformed Judaism. Mohammedism is composed of Judaism, Christianity, and the ancient religion of Arabia, etc. End of section 19. Recording by Roger Moline.